Hello, and welcome to the Blue Earth Podcast, a show focused on our ocean. My name is John Sherburn, and I'm the show's producer. Blue Earth is brought to you by Future Frogmen, a nonprofit organization focused on developing future leaders to protect the ocean. Our president and host is Richard Hyman. Today's episode features Breezy Grenier, who describes herself as having the hair of a mermaid and the soul of a gypsy. Breezy seems to always be on the go, but Richard caught up with her just after she got her new 200-ton captain's license, and before she sailed the Down East Challenge race from Marblehead, Massachusetts to Booth Bay Harbor, Maine. She's an ocean scientist, a mariner, and a modern-day explorer, with the ocean being her home, workplace, and playground. Look for more episodes of Blue Earth wherever you listen. For information about Future Frogmen, check out futurefrogmen.org and run most social media platforms at Future Frogmen. Enjoy the show and remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Let's get into it. So, hey, Breezy, good evening. How are you doing? Good, how are you? Good, good. Before we get started, I wanted to uh, just make mention that you, you certainly have a, a massive resume and uh, what I'd like to do is at least read a, a bit of an overview. It's quite intriguing. You're a multidisciplinary ocean scientist by education, and your professions include being a mariner, an educator, and a business entrepreneur. You've held a myriad of roles within organizations as well as operated as an independent contractor. It's been said you're a modern-day explorer with the ocean being your home, your workplace, and your playground. That sounds wonderful to me. You've been to both the Ar- <laughs> you've been to both the Arctic and the Antarctic, and I'll venture to guess probably more than once to at least one of those locations. We can hear more about that hopefully. And you're on top of all that, you're a U.S. Coast Guard veteran and a licensed 100-ton captain. You've worked on icebreakers, research vessels, and fishing and charter boats, just to name a few. And you've done everything from being the captain to a technician to the safety officer scientist, dive master, and even the chef. You studied geology and geological oceanography and minored in marine biology and underwater archaeology at the University of Rhode Island, URI. So uh, did I get all of that right, Breezy? <laughs> For the most part. For the most I did part? just upgrade my uh, captain's license to 200 ton. So now we're uh, playing hurry up and wait for the papers to go through. So, <laughs> Okay, well, that leads right into one of my first questions for you. When you say the tons, like 100 ton or 200 tons, you're talking about the ship's displacement. Is that correct? It's the size of the working space uh, is the easiest way. It's uh, the cubic square footage okay. um, that will determine the ton of the vessel. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting to me. I did a little research when I read that about you. I knew you were licensed 100 ton, so now now 200 ton as well. That's very cool. Um, I was looking back on Cousteau's Calypso that that I sailed on, and the light load displacement there was 324 tons. It wasn't that big a ship. Uh, I think some of the ships you're dealing with are that size, if not even larger. But uh, Anyway, that's interesting. So what was involved with uh, your 200-ton certification? Well, luckily, the bulk of the training and education uh, went into the 100-ton course. Mm -hmm. So doing the 200-ton upgrade, it was only a three-day extension. Um, So we learned, uh, of course, more safety, more law, um, a lot more of operating tankers, um, some of the rules and the regulations for that. But 
I mean, whenever I take these courses, a lot of it, even if some of it's a refresher, it's good to be reminded of uh, not only some of the resources we have available, uh, but just continuing the education to just be reminded of so much of the maritime law. Mm -hmm. Okay. Does the law vary much by between the sizes of the ships? Not so much to, to an extent. Uh, a lot that we were reviewing in this course uh, was more rules and responsibilities the captain has. So if there's problems with, uh, with crew on the ship, um, what legal rights we have, um, to be able to hold them accountable uh, if their actions aren't as desirable um, as one would hope. So uh, that was pretty interesting for us to actually be able to have easy resources to access um, to see if more is what we can do as a captain to help protect uh, a lot of times other crew as well as the vessel. Yeah, that could be quite challenging, I'm sure, particularly at sea. Yeah, it can get complicated really quickly. So yeah. <laughs> that's why it's always good to have a log and have everything well documented. So yeah, I would imagine sometimes you're uh, you're operating on the fly, though. So I guess you have to have those pretty well memorized so you can stay within the law. Absolutely. So uh, you and I were introduced uh, relatively recently by Mark Fowler, and uh, you and I had a brief uh, introductory call. So I'm I'm really excited uh, again to learn more about your your amazing life and breadth of experiences. And we're, we're talking about ships now. Let's let's stay on that for a little bit. Um, one of our interns asked me in preparation for today's call. She was interested in what it's like to transition from one ship to another. You're dealing with different size ships, different functions of ships. I wonder if you have a, if you can share kind of a perspective on that. It's all about adaptability is kind of the way to briefly get a, uh, describe it um, because each type of vessel you can be on might have a completely different culture. So if I'm out on a research vessel, I hate saying going by stereotypes, but how people interact with the ocean can some people have the same mindset. Um, so a lot of the scientists are very focused on gathering their scientific data where the mariners running the ship are focused on running the ship safely. So you can have a lot more procedure and orderly fashion when operating the ship when you're on a research vessel then you can go off onto a fishing vessel where you have your routines, uh, but it's more a working ship. So it's just a different culture. Uh, and then I'll also go hop on a center council and start teaching people how to drive boats. So you go from operating a large vessel to a small boat um, where it's one-on-one -on -one working with recreational boaters. Uh, so it's really fun seeing the different communities involved working on vessels, how they interact with the sea, um, what their perception is uh, that I value the most um, because sometimes people will see the same situation differently, um, which will help you maybe answer more questions or discover something that you didn't think of it that way uh, before. I know it's uh, difficult for a lot of people to hop from community to community, but um, luckily I'm just easygoing and it's uh, worked out well. My favorite's after driving a hundred plus footer and then I'll go to operating a small boat. And uh, I always make the joke, it's like, I'll drive it like I stole it. 
because when you're dealing with the larger vessels, you have your plan, you kind of have to fully commit because it's a larger uh, vessel to operate. And then you go to a small center council, we'll make it as easy as just say you have a lot more options. <laughs> yeah. It's always fun to move from boat to boat and just see how versatile you really can be. And when you talk about a center console, just for our audience, what size range are you generally talking about? Uh, 20 to 25 feet. That's the size I relatively teach on. Uh, but center councils can get uh, much larger. But you usually don't find them too often over 40 feet. Um, you can, but they're generally in the smaller range. Yeah. Those 20-footers are a lot easier to turn and to stop than a 100-foot ship, right? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. And to accelerate. Uh, yeah. Cool. Gee, there's so many questions. Uh, you're such an interesting person. Um, maybe, why don't you tell us, what are you up to now? What's uh, your current schedule like? What are you up to? My schedule is always fun to try to explain, um, especially right now with the pandemic. I officially launched my business in February. I had several contracts set up throughout the year, and then unfortunately, a lot of it would be heading overseas, so many of them was canceled. And then, uh, especially in the time, the late spring, just before summer, is when I give a lot of my lectures and workshops at schools. Um, so my work came to a complete stop in February, so it was running around trying to adapt uh, to the conditions. Uh, luckily, I was able to pick up a vessel, um, just a sailboat that we were working on restoring, um, getting ready for sea, uh, and then just picking up whatever other contracts I could find at the time. And then a lot of them were rebuilt. And then again, a lot of them are put on hold because of the pandemic. So it's taking advantage of really anything in the opportunity while trying to work on some of my other projects um, when I have time. So every week my schedule changes. <laughs> I took a part-time job uh, towing boats um, when they needed. And then I'm still just hurry up and waiting uh, when I'm able to go meet the other vessels. But it's a good time to work on continuing my education and training. Uh, so I signed up for a course at MIT. I'm taking another course next month at uh, Mississippi State University. And then even working on plans to hopefully go apply for a PhD program if the conditions still arise where it's harder to take my contracts. So Yeah. <clears throat> Some of the studies you just mentioned, will you be doing those on a remote basis? Uh, it depends on which ones. So a lot of stuff I can do remotely, but it's, will I be able to finish successfully completing it um, with the options available? It can get pretty complicated. I make even a joke with uh, the boat we're restoring. We were going to have an engine rebuilt. That uh, factory was closed down for the pandemic. Uh, we found after months of searching a replacement engine over in the Netherlands and then we we're having it sent over. It was supposed to be shipped over uh, via a vessel. Then the port it was being shipped out of, even though the country was open, that port was shut down. So then they couldn't give us an actual timeline of when it would be shipped over. So then we decided to send it over as air freight. And this was about two months ago. So our engine has been stuck in customs for about two months. So. We keep getting so close with a lot of projects and then some hiccups arise that will uh, set us back. 
Hmm. So what about, uh, you've had a lot of interesting experiences in your career, uh, anywhere from when you just started out to present day. Can you share some of the highlights with us, some of your favorites? Yeah, I've been um, grateful to have a lot of interesting opportunities arise, uh, a lot of it because of my personal life, which happened. Uh, so last year, I lost my mother to neurological Lyme's disease. And then just before that, my father was diagnosed with multiple stage four cancers. Uh, so even throughout my uh, university career, I always had to conform and adapt. Um, so I wasn't able to really commit to anything full time because it was hard to find companies that would be comfortable enough where I would have to take off and go take care of my parents. So that's how come I started getting into the opportunities that arose. One of my favorites was going down to Antarctica with the Geological Society of America on their 125th anniversary field trip. And uh, of course, always the bucket list of, I like cold places. Uh, my father's from Canada, so I make jokes that maple syrup runs through my veins so I can withstand the cold. Uh, and then when I got down there, I realized it well, when we were close to a penguin colony, how bad it smelled. <laughs> so... Um, that was always one of my favorite. Everybody's asking me all the questions of Antarctica. And the first thing that always comes to mind is how bad penguin guano smells. You'd be able to smell it before you can see them. Um, and that's always one of the destinations that I'm always trying to get back to. And then, of course, I uh, was able to build up my background uh, and be able to work on ecotourism vessels. And then now we're locked down into the States. So always adapting to current situation. Yeah. Any other uh, particular highlights that are memorable for you or impactful? Yeah, it's hard to pick out just a couple because a lot of them at some point or at some place had so much meaning. Um, it's always cool working with remote communities, um, seeing what their perspectives, um, how they interact with the ocean, seeing what we can learn from them um, just as much as they can learn from us. So I've been up above the Arctic Circle, I think seven times now, seven or eight, I keep losing track. But the people are, that we always interact with are just amazingly friendly. And uh, there's always something to learn. Um, so that's one of my favorite because we're actually working with a lot of the people. You're working with the Inuits, right? Yep. Yep. What's the status of that project? Hurry up and wait. <laughs> yeah. I think this year you were going to do that kind of marathon snorkeling. Yeah, that was... Um, the trajectory. And then we ended up focusing on getting more women trained uh, to be able to withstand the cold and build up our numbers to make it easier to successfully go through the whole relay. But now, especially, a lot of things have been put on pause or hurry up and wait uh, to finish a lot of the projects. So, Yeah. What was your experience on NOAA's ship Okeanos Explorer like? Yeah, I was fortunate enough uh, to be accepted into the Explorer and Training Program. So, of course, my background uh, is geology and geological oceanography. So we were doing seafloor mapping over... Now, forgive me, I always get the acronym wrong. <laughs> um, but it's uh, the Pacific Remote Islands Marine National Monument. So we are in the waters in and around uh, the Marshall Islands. Um, we started in Kwajalein. We did some seafloor mapping around Wake Island and then headed over to Guam. Aside from the Coast Guard, that was the first time being back on a large vessel that had a somewhat regular schedule. So it was so funny. Um, 
I can't even remember. I was the afternoon shift, if I remember correctly. But uh, it was nice having that daily routine that was kind of systematic. But at the same time, every day you're at sea, there's something different. And uh, I remember when we were going over the Marianas Trench, when we were looking at the soundings just disappear uh, into the bloom, uh, the multi-beam kind of just went black when we were going over the trench because the data wasn't coming back. And that was just like so cool being like, wow, the ocean is really endless. There's so much we don't know about it. And when you talk about the beam, you're talking about side scan sonar? Side scan and um, the echo sounder and the multi-beam. One of my friends puts it making rainbows of the seafloor. <laughs> I'll have to tell her I'll, uh, I stole her line. <laughs> <laughs> so for folks that aren't familiar with that technology and how that works, can you tell us a little bit more about the rainbow, so to speak? What's really happening there and what's the result? Uh, so they sent pings out and depending on how fast these pings respond back, will tell you how deep or in some cases, uh, what kind of seafloor sediments are on the bottom. So there's a lot we can learn. You can also see what's in the water column. Um, so sometimes we'll find different types of gas seeps, mostly methane. Yeah, it's kind of hard to just quickly describe. <laughs> right. I know. I know. And it's complicated technology. The, uh, Folks that might not be familiar, the water column is basically the water from the surface all the way down to the sea floor. Uh, a lot of studies cover the, the surface waters as, or the sediment, but they don't necessarily cover the in-between, the water column. So that's that's what we're talking about there. I know in, in some, of the, uh, some of the work that's going on with plastic pollution, there's a bit of a lack of knowledge about what's going on in the sea column. That's something that people are very curious about, uh, learning more about. Also, I'm reminded of when I was with Cousteau, we had uh, a very early version of side scan sonar that we used to uh, draw pictures of the ocean in certain locations to find shipwrecks that had, had previously not been discovered, like the USS Monitor from the Civil War. And uh, we, we actually had uh, Dr. Harold Edgerton from MIT on the ship he was the inventor of side scan sonar. So uh, I'm, I'm kind of uh, partial and very interested in that technology. He, he was a great man. So um, what about some of the other projects you're involved with? I, I'm reminded of uh, Scientists Are Superheroes too. is one of your projects. Yeah. So um, when I'm out in the fields, there's not only so many skills that you learn from sports and just being active uh, that can translate into field research. Uh, there's a lot of equipment that we can use. So especially in this day and age, a lot of kids, they're not going outside. They're getting sucked into use it, just staying on their screens. Um, they're not as active as they used to be. I remember when I was a kid, if it was light out, you were outside and you were not allowed back into the house <laughs> um, until the day was done. And uh, kids nowadays, you just don't see that. They're not outside exploring. And a lot of them, they're not playing as many sports as they used to. Um, they're not being as active as uh, we used to be as kids. So it's trying to inspire them and show them how a lot of these skills actually translate into STEM career fields. Um, so that's kind of what triggered scientists or superheroes, too. Um, I'm a snowboarding instructor, scuba diving instructor, boating instructor. Um, 
I'll teach paddle boarding. Um, I make the jokes I'm Irish, so I teach a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was just crazy because I've been teaching snowboarding in particular for over 16 years. And, of course, teaching the same age groups. And every year you can see the kids being less active. Um, there's times where I actually now have to teach kids how to just jump up and down. Um, and it always blows my mind that they no longer uh, moving their bodies the same way um, and how that actually can affect future field research. Um, especially when we're going to remote locations, a lot of times you just have a backpack with gear and you're hiking to where you need to go. Um, so hopefully the kids will rebuild the Sanima and realize going to visit some of these remote places in person, um, even just going outside and seeing what you can discover in your own backyard is so essential to the learning um, process. Yeah, that's great. Uh, one of the great things uh, as a child, just going to the beach and there's so much to discover just at, at a regular beach, you know, if you let yeah. a child just wander and, and discover the, the shoreline and what's underneath the, the shallow waters, high tide, low tide, the rocks. <laughs> what's under the rocks. <laughs> yeah. What, uh, what, what uh, is your sort of target age group there? I feel like it keeps getting larger uh, because uh, the more people that hear about the project, uh, the more that want to get involved. Uh, but mostly it was uh, with middle school and high schoolers. Mm -hmm. And then uh, I was actually been asked to go speak at a couple of colleges to really just re-inspire uh, people to realize what you can do um, and how a lot of these physical sports uh, skills can actually make a huge difference. Um, in field research, it's taking a look at doing the same task another way. Sometimes we forget we don't have to reinvent sliced bread um, if there's already something similar out there. So, yeah. So one underlying theme of what you're doing there, I'm, I'm gathering, is is being active, physically fit. It, it's the physical aspect that can make you a better participant in, in a STEM career. Absolutely. Okay. And then you also have eco-elders on the other end of the spectrum. Can you tell us about that? Yeah. I'm grateful to have a lot of older friends. Uh, they're in their 80s, 90s. I can't believe I'm lucky enough to be friends with some of them because I'm like, really? You're putting up with me? <laughs> but there's so much that I learned from them. And then uh, on the other hand, a lot of them will say that I don't have the same connection uh, with my great-grandchildren or great-great-grandchildren as I did my grandkids or even my kids, there's a lot of just social disconnect. Uh, some of it has to do with not being familiar with all the technology that they can communicate and stay in touch. And a lot of it is, I feel like a lot of the kids nowadays, not all of them, but you're seeing not as much respect towards our elders and you're not seeing the same interest in wanting to learn from them, see what their point of view was. Um, there's so many people that I just want to sit down for hours and absorb as much as I can talking to them. And a lot of the kids I feel nowadays, um, they're like, okay, well, I can Google it. Or, well, just because you said that happened, that's not true. And you hear them questioning a lot more and not taking really what you can learn from someone to heart. Um, I know it's a very broad statement, but I've come into that um, encounters with some kids that it, it's becoming more and more often. It's kind of heartbreaking. I mean, I even wish that my grandparents lived a little bit closer so I'd be able to have more of a connection with them 
but also at the same time, by not having the connection with their uh, elders within their own family, a lot of skills that they don't teach anymore. So a lot of schools, they're losing funding for home ec, they're losing funding for woodshop. And a lot of these are extremely important to being an adult, knowing how to mend your own clothing, knowing how to cook, uh, knowing how to do basic home improvements. They're extremely vital. And a lot of them actually become more favorable for a more environmentally friendly lifestyle, um, being able to make your own things, um, repair your own things. And of course, a lot of that's just disappearing. Uh, Everybody wants something new. I always say that we're becoming a single-use society. It's a lot of times cheaper just to buy something new than actually taking that time and replace it. Uh, And we're seeing a lot of things being made for quantity, uh, not for quality. So hopefully we can still reinstill the next generation to continue working on their own personal skills um, to keep building what they already have uh, to be more resourceful. Yeah, I think one thing you're also touching upon there is sustainability, reusing instead of uh, throwing away, but using things smartly, selecting products that can be reused and uh, are more sustainable. Uh, I think that's something that the older generations, that's how they grew up, really. Anywhere from, you know, the milkman to a host of other things, really before plastic was not used so much. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's so much we can learn from them as well, because you don't really publish failures. That's not really a thing. So there's mistakes that could have been made in the past uh, that we can learn from. And you're really not going to learn that unless you develop that connection with the generations that lived through it. Uh, which I find to be extremely important, too. So, Breezy, um, let's maybe switch gears a little bit here. You you spend a lot of time on the water, uh, either uh, close to the shoreline or further out at sea. What is your view of the current aquatic environment in the ocean? I could say the one thing I can guarantee or the one thing that's kind of regular when I'm out at sea is I'll always find plastic or I'll always find evidence of humans. Um, It doesn't matter if I'm all the way up in the Arctic Circle um, or 300 plus miles offshore, which is kind of devastating. I mean, we only know about 5% of our oceans. Um, There's so much that we have to explore. And even when I'm in areas where you don't see land for days and you'll still come across plastic. It's just heartbreaking. Um, And a lot of it, it's not even just plastic. It's just single use material. There is plastic that we need in our lives. That's helped us save certain species. That's helped us save. You can, we can have food last much longer uh, health supplies, of course, but it's really focusing on the single use plastics helped us, expand our culture, expand our productivity, but it's the single use that I think that's holding us back. Yeah, that's well said. And, and one thing uh, I've come to learn in the recent year or two is uh, the myth of recycling, how so little that we think we are individually, personally recycling actually gets recycled. It either goes to a landfill or is burned uh, the numbers vary, but certainly below 10% in the U.S. and uh, probably way below 10% in certain other countries. 
who don't have the infrastructure or the technology to properly recycle. So that's one of the things that we focus on, trying to educate and grow awareness and, and prevent further pollution from plastic. So that's, uh, that's been impactful on you when you're at sea, seeing the plastic really everywhere you go. Yeah. What about, uh, would you, I guess, categorize things like marine debris within that? Yes. Go, go, um, ghost nets and things like that? Yeah, you'll see a lot of um, ghost nets, fishing gear, buoys. Uh, the one that really just uh, angers me the most is the helium balloons. The other day, I had to go out for a job, so I marked where one of the helium balloons was on my chart, and I would come back to go get it. And uh, I was gone for about six hours. And uh, whenever I instruct, I always tell my boaters, I'm like, a good thing to do that helps practice safety and helps clean up our environment. Whenever you see a helium balloon, why don't you practice a man overboard? So then you'll go and collect the balloon. And uh, I mean, it was a, a weekend day. So I was really disappointed that I was able to come back and find that balloon. I was hoping somebody else would have went and picked it up. Um, but to be able to come back and find that same balloon was in a well-trafficked area, for a way to put it, uh, was kind of devastating. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, we don't necessarily hear a lot about that on, on land. If you're talking beach cleanups and things like that, they are visible at sea and they can be consumed by creatures that mistake them for a jellyfish or whatever. Uh, they last for a very long time and people get them for their parties and so forth and don't think about the consequences of uh, if they get released or intentionally released. So thanks for mentioning that. So what advice would you give to someone who is interested in pursuing a career that involves working with ships and the sea? Well, luckily for the next generation, um, being a mariner, I don't want to say it's a dying trade, but not as many people are taking to sea as they used to. Uh, a lot of people like coming home every night. So luckily, the government's been giving a lot of money for grants for continued education and training. And uh, as for most subjects and for careers, uh, there's a lot of money out there to help you continue your education and training. And a lot of people don't apply. Even if you don't think you fully qualify for what's required, uh, I always tell people, do it anyway. Um, there's a lot of boards that I'm either friends of, with or a part of, and they say we just don't get that many applicants. And that's how I've been able to go out on a lot of my opportunities, is even if I didn't fit all the qualifications perfectly, I still applied. Um, and then luckily there just might have been space. Um, or they never thought of including somebody um, with those skill sets and they missed that correlation on how it could be beneficial for them to have that course. So that's my big uh, recommendation. And to go try really everything, especially for marine biology. I meet a lot of students and uh, they always talk about, well, I don't even know exactly what kind of career I can have um, because most I can find is internships or I have to have this much schooling to get these jobs. Um, so people need to be aware of what's involved on to get to the career that you want to get to. A lot of places, you're not going to just wake up with your dream job overnight. It takes a lot of time to build your way up the ladder. And uh, 
to really see what goes on into the career you want to do. A lot of people I know that wanted to work out at sea or if they wanted to work in the inner, inner title, they don't like being constantly wet or working with quote unquote smelly samples. <laughs> um, so people have to realize what's the downfall of some job. Um, and if you can withstand that, that's amazing because that will make you that 10 times better at your job um, and more likely to stay within that career field. So especially in many of the STEM degrees, a lot of people don't realize all the, the hard work that's involved in a lot of uh, the career fields. Yeah, that, that's, uh, that's great advice. And you being someone that has spent uh, a, a lot of different experiences in the field, uh, it reminds me of what one of our advisors has impressed upon me that we need, we need to get the students out of the lab into the field because things are happening so quickly they they need to see it and feel it, touch it, and, and also in order to uh, kind of figure out their career, what they like, what they don't like, where they fit, and so forth. Uh, uh, getting into the field can be a, a a priceless experience for them. Absolutely, there's even a lot of people that they wanted their heart was set on working at sea. Uh, they've never been on a boat, let's say even outside three miles offshore, and they find out they get seasick. Um, that can make your job very difficult. Um, so if you're able to get on a boat really for any job, the more time you can go and invest personally trying to learn it, whether it's an internship or a job at the same building, working your way up the ladder, seeing what's involved with different aspects. That's really just helped develop mine and being so lucrative Again, a lot of it had to deal with adapting for taking care of my parents for personal reasons. Um, but at the same time, that opened up so many opportunities and helped me develop that into something to help connecting different industries and different disciplines to make their work easier in the long run, which we need a lot of more interdisciplinary work. So, Yeah, that's uh, well said. That's, that's something we feel very strongly about at Future Frogmen, although we uh, we believe in science and we we work closely with the scientific community. We also work hard to be interdisciplinary and include really uh, all fields uh, because everyone, whether it's their occupation or their avocation, if they can be champions for the ocean, then that's that's a good thing for all of us. Absolutely. So Breezy, it's been a, a pleasure having you as our guest. Uh, I really want to thank you for spending time with us and sharing uh, at least a few of your wonderful stories. I'm, I'm sure there, there are many, many more, but uh, you're certainly a fascinating woman and uh, you've had a great career so far and I'm sure there's uh, a lot of great things yet to come. So thanks again for sharing that with us. Thank you for having me, Richard. It's uh, quite the honor and the pleasure. <laughs> we hope you liked today's Blue Earth Podcast. Thanks for listening. Wherever you're hearing us, please rate and review the show and check out our website for upcoming podcasts, blogs, and more. We're now releasing the Blue Earth Podcast on a weekly basis. So until next time, remember, anyone can be an ocean ambassador. Thanks.